Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. It's been more than 75 years since the end of the Holocaust, but anti-Semitism is on the rise in Canada, particularly in Western provinces. Over the past five years, both online and face-to-face hate crimes directed towards the Jewish community have increased. In early May, a 19-year-old man in Ontario was charged by the RCMP when he applied to be part of a neo-Nazi terrorist group. The man has a history of hate crime charges, with several dating back to early 2021. It's the first time a terrorism charge in Canada has been directly linked to a neo-Nazi organization. If we allow anti-Semitism, look where it could go. I know it's an extreme example, but I do believe that there was some relationship between the awareness of what happened during the Holocaust and, you know, anti-Semitism being an absolute no-go zone. Marsha Lederman is the Western arts correspondent for The Globe. Her new memoir is called Kiss the Red Stairs. Marsha joins us to talk about researching her parents' lives as Holocaust survivors and the responsibility that she feels to share these stories so that history doesn't repeat itself. This is The Decibel. Good morning. Hi, Marsha. Nice to see you again. Good to see you, too. It's been a little little while, I guess a couple months, maybe. I'm really glad to have you here, and, and I am excited to talk about your book, because usually we're talking about other people's books, so now we actually get to talk about your work. Your memoir, of course, is called Kiss the Red Stairs, and I want to just start by asking you, Marsha, what is the story behind that title? What a terrible first answer I'm about to give you. I don't want to say, <laughs> because I feel like... It's uh, for people who will read this book. I feel like it's kind of um, a special reveal and I don't want to give that away. So um, how do I answer that now? I can tell you that it has something to do with my past and something I learned about as I was researching this book and something I hope to accomplish so that's a very cryptic answer, and I apologize. No, it's, it, it is intriguing. I think it's an interesting way to start, yeah. Uh, can you tell me about your parents when you were growing up? I mean, what was it that made you kind of want to delve into their history? Well, their history is fascinating. Um, both of my parents survived the Holocaust. I kind of knew bits and pieces growing up. I understood that my father worked on a farm. I knew my mother had had her head shaved at a place called Auschwitz. I knew some of this stuff, but I didn't know how it all connected. I didn't know the A to B to C to D story. And unfortunately, I never really got that story fully from my parents while they were alive, while I was able to ask them. I did get some answers, but not all of them. You should ask your parents the questions, ask your grandparents the questions, aunts and uncles, whoever you have in your life that can tell you, like, obviously, thank goodness, not all of our parents and grandparents survive this horrible kind of existence, but they all have amazing stories to tell us, and we should get them while we can. This book is about very, very personal stories. 
I guess I, I wondered, were you nervous about, about putting those out into the world at all? Oh, my God. Not past tense. <laughs> I'm still extremely nervous. Um, it's uh, like I'm terrified. I, as journalists, were trained, especially back in the day when I started, that we are never the story. We're never part of the story. And I, I think that when I was writing it, I sort of didn't think about that. I think that I never really pictured someone picking up a book and reading these words because everything in there is so personal. And I hope that maybe reading about my experience can help somebody else feel less alone, less, you know, oh my gosh, it, it's not just me. And also maybe highlight the fact that there's resilience as well that we have inherited. If we've inherited trauma, we've inherited resilience. And we will get into both intergenerational trauma and the resilience that you mentioned there too. But I guess I, I just want to take a moment though and really think about the world that we're in now, the world that this book is is going into. Uh, I think about this because just last month we learned that the Canadian government has plans to make Holocaust denial a, a criminal offense in Canada. Uh, and this is something that some other countries have done, Germany, France, Belgium, to name a few. But this would be new in Canada and I guess, you know, what do you think that says now that we need a law like that in Canada at this point in time? It's pretty crazy, huh? Um, it's, you know, when I think back to, I don't know, I guess like the the 1990s, maybe, anti-Semitism became something that was absolutely socially unacceptable. There was a time when it was socially acceptable, I'm sorry to say, in some circles. But I feel like awareness of the Holocaust put an end to that. Like, if we allow anti-Semitism, look where it could go. I, I know it's an extreme example, but I do believe that there was some relationship between the awareness of what happened during the Holocaust and, you know, anti-Semitism being an absolute no-go zone. Things have changed. And I, I see anti-Semitism often and all around me, sometimes directed at me, you know, my kid is in high school and there's some kid in his math classes drawing swastikas on erasers. And there have been days when they've had to close the washrooms because people are putting swastika images on these washrooms. And maybe these kids don't understand. And I, I'm assuming that they don't, which is also a problem. Hmm. You know, we, you talk about education in, in your book, too, about how you were taught about the Holocaust. And I, so I guess I wonder how education shapes your understanding of it and, and more broadly, uh, you know, society's understanding of what happened. So my education was extremely personal. It was in my house. I learned some horrific details as a very young child from my mother. Uh, I always knew my parents had been through something terrible. There were all these sort of hints and um, not exactly whisperings, but it was it was around in my house. It was everywhere. I was raised in this environment. But my actual education came from media, um, from seeing a film, a Holocaust documentary that was probably Night and Fog when I was seven years old at Hebrew school, which was a shock and horrific for me. Uh, the scene that I recall is all of these naked corpses being pushed into a pit by a bulldozer. And I remember looking at that screen and thinking one of those bodies could be my grandmother God. because it was very personal for me. 
Um, that was not a good way to introduce seven-year-olds to the concept of the Holocaust. I, I think there's a, a big gap between being shown these videos uh, at a very young age to becoming aware of these atrocities that happened really not that long ago in history. I think it's very important that this be taught so kids aren't drawing swastikas in high school washrooms because they'll understand what those swastikas mean. So education is is really key then, I guess, from from that perspective, would you say? Education is so important. And for many years, and still, uh, Holocaust survivors themselves have gone into schools here in Canada and talked to students about their experiences. And nothing could be more powerful than that, of course, hearing the story from an actual survivor. But, you know, they're aging uh, they are eventually that generation is going to be gone. And I feel like as the child of two Holocaust survivors, I have a responsibility to continue that education to help in any way I can. And that is another major reason why I continued with writing this book, which was a difficult project, but I think an important one. And I hope that people learn something from it. You use the word responsibility there. And, and is, is that how you think of it then? I mean, with a, a lot of survivors now, I mean, it's, you know, so many decades ago now, so we don't have many survivors anymore. Do you feel that responsibility to to share this knowledge? 100%. I absolutely feel responsible. I feel like it is my duty. I feel like I now have a responsibility to give back to the world, not just to tell the story of the Holocaust so people know this happened. Yes, that's important. But also so people can see what can happen. So people can step up and say, no, we will not allow this, whatever this is, uh, genocide in China or Ukraine. And also so people will understand so people will understand what it means to be descended from trauma, because we are a country that put Indigenous children and their parents through horrible traumas, and we have to understand the impact of that. Let's talk about that, that being descended from trauma. This is, this is something that you talk about throughout your book, uh, this idea of intergenerational trauma. Before we get into the experience of that, could you just define what that means? So intergenerational trauma is a trauma that is experienced by somebody being passed down through generations to their offspring, which you know, traditionally has been thought to have occurred through nurture, like through environment. So my parents were so affected by the trauma they experienced that somehow it had an impact on their ability to parent and that my upbringing was affected by that or infected by it is a, a term I like to use. And then these studies have suggested that those adaptations continue to their offspring. So with trauma, the thinking is that trauma leaves a chemical mark on the genes of the person who experiences it. The gene isn't altered, but the way it's expressed is altered, like the instruction to the gene changes. Mm. And now there are a number of studies that show that those chemical markers can be passed down through reproduction, through 
the generations. So to me. And yet you write in your book that you're a, a Holocaust survivor once removed. Can, can you talk a little bit more about, about what you mean by that? Yeah, well, the thinking is that if you are the descendant of someone who has who has experienced this great trauma that in a way you have experienced this trauma too. Like your, your body has experienced this trauma in a way you might not understand. So does that make me a survivor? I mean, I, I don't, I don't use that term for myself, but there are people who call themselves, um, intergenerational survivors of trauma. And I understand that, um, because you're, you are altered in some way. And I am sure I'm whether I'm not sure about the science, because there's still work to be done on that. But I am sure that what happened to my parents has had an impact on me. Can I ask, and you can answer this, you know, however much you're comfortable, Marcia, but what are the some way some of the ways that you've maybe noticed this this kind of trauma in yourself? Oh sure. Um, so I'm a, <laughs> I'm not exactly an optimist. We'll put it that way. I'm I've I have a great tendency to uh, to worry, to be anxious, to to catastrophize. Like I always think something terrible is about to happen, it, even on in a good situation. I think the other shoe is about to drop. Something bad is always going to happen because that's how it is for us. And so I can never be comfortable in joy. I can't be comfortable in the moment. Uh, and that's really hard. It's, it's hard to live with that. And I, I think, too, like we're going through a difficult period of time in, in the world right now with pandemic, war in Ukraine, political polarization, um, and obviously not trying to compare traumas here. But I think a lot of people have seen kind of grief within themselves and grief around them in, in recent years, and maybe in a way that they haven't thought of a lot before. I guess I, I wonder if you thought about the way that if people are more open to kind of understanding this idea now of not necessarily worried about things that affect them, but seeing how things that affect other people also directly affect them. Is that something you've thought about or seen? Oh, yeah. I, you know, I'm watching the pictures from Ukraine and there it's very triggering for me. Uh, not, not to say that my experience is, you know, any, anywhere near comparable to people who have relatives, family, friends there, or, you know, even worse are experiencing it. But I look at those pictures and right away I am transported back to my own family's experience, my own family dragging a, a suitcase or whatever they could carry on their back as they were expelled from their homes, not sure if they were ever going to see them again. You write a lot about about both your parents in your book, Marcia. Um, and there's there's one segment in particular that I that I want to ask you about. You talk about watching a documentary about the Holocaust, uh, Shoah, and watching it's like nine hours long, uh, and watching it in one weekend during the pandemic. And as you were watching this, something happened with the lamp in the room that you were sitting in beside the photo of your parents. Can, can, you, can you tell me that story? Yeah, so Shoah is the most harrowing thing I have ever seen. And I decided that I should watch it as I was writing this book. And I sat down on a weekend to do that. And as I started watching it, I realized that somehow... I. 
I just thought it was stories of Holocaust survivors. I didn't realize what the actual theme was. And what he was investigating was the actual death process. How did the Nazis do this? And I'm watching this and I'm thinking, I don't even know if I can take this. And all of a sudden, this lamp that I have that wasn't working, that hadn't worked for a long time, that a, a friend of mine actually had bought me um, at a time when I was feeling really alone and she bought it for me as a Hanukkah gift. It's the Festival of Lights. All of a sudden it lit up, like out of nowhere while I was watching this. And then I looked at it and I thought, what? What just happened? And then, you know, it, it turned off and I thought, okay, maybe that was some weird fluke. Maybe I even imagined it. But it happened again and again and again as I was watching that horrific documentary. And it never happened afterward. And I don't believe in a lot of sort of mystical, spiritual things, you know, the unexplained, the I don't really even believe in an afterlife or I don't believe in an afterlife. But, oh, my God, it just felt like my parents were with me at that moment. I don't know. Oh, and I should also say that that lamp is right next to a photo of my parents. And it just oh. felt like felt like they were trying to send me some light. Hmm. Yeah, that's such a story. Wow. You had a, a trip planned. Do you have any plans to do that trip again when things do open up, when it is okay to go? Is, is this something that you still want to do? Oh my gosh, a hundred percent. We, I, we had talked about going last September, but then the pandemic was still happening. Thought about this summer, pandemic is still happening. Uh, I am desperate, might be too strong a word, but incredibly enthusiastic about taking this trip. It is very important to me to go and see where my father spent those years pretending to be another person, a Catholic Polish guy working on a farm. I, I want to see that farm. I want to see the church, the Catholic church, where he prayed every Sunday. I want to see, I want to meet the family, the descendants of this farmer who saved my father's life. Marcia, thank you so much for speaking with us and, and for writing this book. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on to talk about it. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our intern is Emily McPhail. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and Rachel Levy-McLaughlin. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.